The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. A couple of weeks ago, Sharon talked about happiness, and just coincidentally, that was the same topic I picked for tonight, although I'm going to come at it from a little different angle. But the question really is, you know, if you look around in the world, is this even possible? Is this just... Is this just a delusion to even talk about? And I hope to make the argument tonight that it is possible, and it's possible despite what's going on in the external world. So bear with me on that. Most of what we associate with in our culture uh, when we talk about happiness really focuses on external factors. We talk about uh, a new job, a new car, a new iPhone, a new relationship, um, something outside of us that, that is a source of happiness, something that, we, that makes us feel uplifted, at least temporarily. But what if we look at our lives and everything seems to be going pretty well, you know, we've got all the latest toys or whatever, and we're still unhappy? And that's really the, the issue that the Buddha taught. I mean, he, he said famously, that he taught uh, the nature of suffering and really what to do about suffering. And suffering really being the antithesis of, of happiness. Rick Hansen, who's the psychologist and Dharma teacher, neuroscientist, talks extensively, and we've talked about it here, about how our minds are biased toward the negative and that we find reasons to be unhappy even when in the midst of good fortune talks about, we, well, I won't get into that, but there's an evolutionary bias as to why we often tend toward the negative. And many of us, perhaps due to early causes and conditions growing up, however we grew up, don't feel entitled to happiness. We feel that somehow it's just not our, our birthright, that we, we really aren't, aren't entitled. So we, we struggle with it, we push it away. So in the West, I think we really don't talk about a real path to happiness, a real sustainable path to happiness that's enduring in any way, not just these periodic little blips of joy that come from getting the latest gadget or the latest toy or getting a new partner or a new relationship or whatever. We teach our kids largely that happiness derives from things. You know, they want things, not necessarily the experiences they have or how they are in the world or how they see the world. <clears throat> you know, we tend to be chronic warriors. We fear that if we let our guard down, we'll get hit with all kinds of unpleasant surprises. So it's really hard to be happy when we're constantly worrying about whatever the next calamity is that awaits us out there. James Bear, as some of you know, he, he's author of a book called Awakening Joy, has a year-long course on awakening joy. Um, he reminds us that joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment that the Buddha taught, and that uh, it's really something to be sought, desired. It really is our birthright. The Dalai Lama talks about this a great deal as well. Uh, James Bears emphasizes that an important practice is really just paying attention to the small moments of joy in our lives. Don't let them just go past us. Don't, don't just take them for granted. But really learn to mindfully pay attention to those moments of joy. Just the smile from a friend, 
a, a song on the radio that makes you have a moment of joy, a, a beautiful sunset, uh, any number of things, a, a tasty meal. You know, accept those as moments of joy and really embrace them. I mean, that's part of his whole awakening joy curriculum. The type of happiness that the Buddha taught, though, and the, the type I want to really talk about tonight is really different from how we think about it typically in the West. It's not based upon external factors. It's, it's more enduring. It's not episodic. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't keep us on a roller coaster. Philip Moffat, who's a, a Dharma teacher out at Spirit Rock, says, quote, talking about happiness. He says, it's essentially, it's the freedom that comes from no longer being identified with your ego sense of self. You become liberated from the feelings of fear, stress, and suffering that inevitably come when you are identified with the ego, which is always coping with the fragility, the uncertainty, and the unavoidable loss and death of physical life. So he says the freedom of being able to step back from that is really one of the prerequisites or one of the paths that can lead us to true happiness. But it's not something we can will. It's not something we can just force to happen. And it's not exuberance. It's not jumping up and down with joy. It's not transient. It's, again, much more enduring, as I hope to, uh, hope to talk about in a minute. It's, it's quieter. It's more internal. It's more equanimous. It has a quality of equanimity about it, an evenness about it. Gil Franzdahl is a teacher out on the West Coast at Redwood Insight, our Insight at Redwood, uh, talks about how it just evolves naturally out of our meditation practice and from our study of the Dharma, really both. It's understanding the, the true nature of the Dharma as the Buddha taught it, but it's also from our meditation practice where it just arises naturally. It talks about samadhi tranquility as being really a joyful state of enduring happiness. And we often will get glimpses of this when we least expect it. As I said, you know, maybe just that moment when you look out at the sunset or, you know, see the smile on a, first smile on a baby's face or something of that nature where there's just that, taps into that deep sense, that inner sense of joy that I think is what the Buddha was talking about. So Philip Moffat goes on to talk about three types of what he calls spontaneous happiness. So the first one being is when conditions in our life are as we desire them to be. That's when everything's just clicking along. Again, not an enduring type of happiness. It's an episodic, temporary happiness. The second one is the sense of well-being that comes when our mind is at ease. There's a tranquility. There's a joyfulness, and that's regardless of whatever's whirling around us. So we, we're, we're, we're able to sort of be in the storm and still have a sense of calm, tranquility. And that's a, a, a more stable kind of happiness. It's sort of the next, the next step up, if you will. And then the third that he talks about is what he describes as unbounded joy that happens when we've reached final liberation. And that's something we all may aspire to. I'm not sure any of us will ever get there. At least I don't have enough years left. Maybe you do. But he says the three tools to, to, to seek these, to achieve these, are mindfulness, investigation, which is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and appreciation. 
So it's mindfulness, being present in the moment as we, as we did during the meditation. Investigation, really looking, shining a light onto those uh, experiences in our life and then really savoring them, really that sense of appreciation for those moments that I talked about a little while ago. So most of us are pretty familiar with the first kind of happiness when the external conditions are right. Everything seems good. Today's a beautiful day. It's, weather's unusually warm. I went outside. It just seemed like everything was just okay in the world. But it was, it was temporary. I mean, something could have and probably did come to mind that caused me to suffer or reminded me of suffering in some way. But again, it's those beautiful sunsets. It's the completion of a project. Maybe it's getting a promotion at work, um, a meaningful connection with another person. Any of those things can cause that kind of um, temporary uh, and pleasant happiness. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's nothing we shouldn't enjoy. It's just that we shouldn't get attached to it. We shouldn't cling to it. We should just see it for what it is. But part of seeing it for what it is is recognizing the impermanence of it, that it is fleeting, and that if we try to cling to it and hold on to it, invariably we're going to be disappointed, invariably we're going to be uh, unhappy because it, it didn't last. You know, we just came through the holiday season where for so many people there's that post-holiday letdown, you know, the, the build-up, you know, all the excitement and the decorations and the ads on TV and the families in the fireplace and the whole bit and then it's done and the tree comes down and it's sort of like boom you know, have to wait till next year because there's that clinging to it that clinging to whatever we invest into the holiday this magic sense of how everything should be and then there's that disappointment when it ends So these are really moments of conditional happiness. They're conditional upon external factors. And they're dependent, as I said, on external conditions. You know, I spent many, many years clinging to this sort of external conditional happiness, thinking that was, if only I got the next thing or the next thing happened or, or uh, you know, this person went out with me or whatever the situation was that I set up. I could literally cite you hundreds of examples uh, during my part of my misspent youth and, and my college years. I would look forward to these weekends where we would have some kind of big goings-on, a concert or a party or whatever, with tremendous excitement and, and tremendous joy of what I thought was joy. And then come Sunday night when it was over, I would just take a nosedive because it was gone and I was just grasping and just counting the days till the next one. And if we believe that that's the source of happiness and that's what we continue to pursue, it's very, very hard to get off the roller coaster. It's very hard to shift gears, to, to, to redirect our efforts toward a more enduring kind of, kind of happiness. And then there's the second type I spoke of, which is more stable, and it occurs not when life is as we wish it to be, but it but there's an enduring happiness even if it's as we don't want it to be necessarily. That there's adversity, there's other things that come up, and yet there's still this sort of an internal stability and equanimity that comes 
along that if, if, if it comes with our practice. I think it's one of the real gifts of this practice is to develop that capacity for that internal, stable kind of happiness, tranquility uh, that comes really independent of external factors. It doesn't mean we don't get knocked off, off balance, but we sort of like those, remember those um, dolls, I forget what they call them when I was a kid, you'd knock it over and it would bounce right back. That kind of thing where you, where you sort of have this resilience to bounce back. You have a certain amount of equanimity that allows you to, to restore your balance and not be completely um, knocked over. It's characterized by, you know, sort of being in a good mood. I often think of it that way, that I'm in a pretty good mood and I'm, I'm not as susceptible as I used to be to things coming along and undermining that good mood. Or, or, or putting me in, in, a, in a bad mood. The moodiness really tends to even out somewhat. So if you think about times when you're, you're in a good mood and you receive some unpleasant news and, and find yourself relatively undisturbed, I mean, that's a sign that your practice is really starting to get some traction, that you're really beginning to feel that, that inner stability, that kind of enduring happiness that the Buddha taught. It's not dependent on external factors. Just before Christmas, we found out that my wife's car needed a lot of expensive repairs. And I was aware that in the past I would have really sort of just bombed on that, that I would have fretted, gotten really upset. Why me? You know, why is the universe doing this, especially before the holidays, on and on and on. But somewhat surprisingly, pleasantly, I found myself relatively, for me, taking the news in stride. I wasn't pleased about it, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to let it ruin my entire day or my entire week. It was just sort of one of those things like, well, it is what it is. You know, stuff happens. Uh, that's, that's more that kind of thing where we try to make, it's not even a conscious, effortful thing. It just sort of happens because the practice has given us that stability we're not as easily bounced around by whatever the prevailing winds are. I, I like to use this a lot, and we're going to do, we're going to try it out in a few minutes with a reflection. But if you know, Jack Cornfield teaches this, this mantra where he says, "And this too." So whatever comes up, he says, "And this too," and this too, whether it's good, bad, or neutral. And it's a very powerful practice. I mean, for as simple as it seems, and again, we'll, 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 do, it, we'll do it in a few minutes, uh, I'm going to really encourage you to, to try it some because it's, it's a way of really embracing the uncertainty of life. It's a way of really cultivating that sense of acceptance that I think is a prerequisite for the kind of happiness that the, that the Buddha really talked about. So regardless of what's frustrating or upsetting, big or small, and this too, and this too. And then the third kind of happiness and, and the most challenging and far-reaching is that which is really the freedom from all wants and desires, all clinging, uh, freedom from pushing away all that, that is unpleasant other than those needs that are necessary for survival. And this is probably one definition of, of enlightenment. This is probably a state which the Buddha, Buddha reached in his own lifetime. Um, 
I spoke several months ago about the tyranny of the ego and that, that experience of no self, the absence of the sense of I, and that's really, I think, what, what, what uh, Philip Moffat's talking about here. This is from the uh, Sukha Sutta. We talk about dukkha a lot, Sukha being the word for um, joy or happiness uh, from the Pali. And this is from that Sutta, and the Buddha says, there are, O monks, these three feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant feelings. Be it a pleasant feeling, be it a painful feeling, be it neutral, one's own or others, feelings of all kinds. He knows them as ill, deceitful, evanescent. Seeing how they impinge again and again and disappear, he wins detachment from the feelings, passion free. So he's really talking about detachment from feelings, be they positive, negative, or neutral. And that's sort of the ultimate goal of, of the practice. <clears throat> you may be familiar with the positive psychology movement, and I guess in the, probably in the past 30, 30 some years, uh, where there's an emphasis on cultivating happiness, less of an emphasis on psychopathology. Um, and I think this has been a, been a really important uh, movement, but I think it doesn't necessarily go far enough. It doesn't go sort of as far as cultivating that inner sense of, of, of ongoing stability. And it certainly doesn't go to the third kind of happiness, which is this happiness which really transcends um, the sense of self, that sense of separate self, that sense of I. So as I said, the paradox here, the sort of the, the dirty secret is that the more we accept our suffering, the more we accept that which is unpleasant, the greater our happiness. If, if we say this is just part of the deal and this too, with regard to all, all the slings and arrows, all the storms that we encounter in this life, that once we accept that and accept that that's part of the deal, that's part of the package, then we're much more able to maintain our stability because we're not, we're not feeling, we're not personalizing it. We're not feeling like, oh, why is this happening to me or this is the worst thing that could happen or whatever. It's just like stuff happens and this too and I'll just move on to the next, to the next thing. So let's do a couple of reflections. Um, if you would, so just get comfortable, maybe close your eyes. The first one we're going to focus on conditional happiness. So if you bring to mind a situation uh, in which your happiness was contingent upon an external factor, something like you got a new car, your team just won the playoffs, um, you just met a new person, you're really excited about getting to know, whatever and just bring to mind how that felt when you encountered that, that uh, external factor. Now try and recall how you responded as time moved on and the bloom began to come off that rose. What, what did that feel like? So now the car is not so new your team lost the last couple of games. Um, you've gotten to know the person. You've sort of seen some of their flaws. You don't idealize them as much. 
was there was there some clinging to that experience? Was there an attempt to hold on to the to the initial conditional happiness? And what form did that clinging take? How did you manage your disappointment or your suffering? Did you manage it by thinking about the next new thing or the next condition looking, that you were looking forward to? Now imagine, if you will, putting less importance on that external factor. Imagine de-emphasizing that as a source of happiness. See how that might feel. Just cultivating that awareness of how fleeting those external factors can be and the happiness that they bring. How temporary. And then this, the second reflection really involves just using that and this too mantra. Just ask you to uh, recall a recent event which was upsetting in some way. And just imagine accepting that event with a, and this too kind of attitude. Accepting it without personalizing it. Just seeing it as part of the ups and downs of life. And just seeing if you might feel any differently with that kind of perspective. and this too.
Okay. You know, and, and it's it's interesting to use it in all kinds of situations. Everything from you know, you're coming up to the traffic light and it turns red or yellow or whatever. I mean, just whatever daily irritants, large or small, I think it can be a really good way of cultivating perspective uh, in this too. So. I want to read part of an essay from um, Mary Oliver. Usually I read her poetry, but this is uh, an, from an essay called The Perfect Days. And it, it's just a section of it. It's not the entire. And I'll, I'll close with this. She says, Once years ago, I emerged from the woods in the early morning at the end of a walk. And it was the most casual of moments as I stepped from under the trees into the mild, pouring down sunlight, I experienced a sudden impact, a seizure of happiness. It was not the drowning sort of happiness, rather the floating sort. I made no struggle toward it, it was given. Time seemed to vanish, urgency vanished. Any important difference between myself and all other things vanished. I knew that I belonged to the world and felt comfortably my own containment in the totality. I did not feel that I understood any mystery, not at all. Rather, that I could be happy and feel blessed within the perplexity, the summer morning, its gentleness, the sense of the great work being done through the, though the grass where I stood scarcely trembled. As I say, it was the most casual of moments, not mystical as the word is usually meant, but there was no vision or anything extraordinary at all, but only a sudden awareness of the citizenry of all things within one world, leaves, dust, thrushes and finches, men and women. And yet it was a moment I've never forgotten and a upon which I have based many decisions in the years since. So, thank you very much. We have a few minutes if you have any questions or comments. About happiness. Jackie. <laughs> it's sort of, I mean, for me, I envision it as sort of swimming in the, in the same water. I, I don't know how you have that sort of enduring happiness without equanimity. I think it's a necessary and but maybe not sufficient but certainly necessary. Hmm. I'd have to think about that. I don't know, it's a good question. I was going to say on the other hand that happiness involves equanimity, probably some tranquility, acceptance which is part of equanimity. I mean, they're all so interwoven. 
Yeah. That would, that would be my guess. Anyone else have thoughts about that? Julie? Abiding? Did everyone hear Julie? She said sort of two t types of equanimity. She thinks about it, one and more abiding, of sort of getting through an experience, weathering the storm, and the other more a sense of joy and contentment, which I think is an interesting, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think I think if one is enlightened, one probably doesn't go around saying so. <laughs> it's probably unseemly to do that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, it's it's defined in such different ways. It's it's just you know that people talk of it. in the Zen tradition. They talk about instant enlightenment. All of a sudden, boom, you just get it. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. It's just a perplexing question. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Byron Katie and Eckhart Tolle, she said, two, two enlightened beings. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Jeff, did you have a comment? So Jeff was saying, lack of suffering, sort of thinking of it in those terms, the absence of suffering. In, in some sense, that's what the Buddha was talking about when he said. <laughs> yeah, no, not lobotomy, right. Other thoughts? Well, try that in this too mantra and see if it, it works. It's certainly been useful for me and hope it will be for you. So thank you very much. See you next week.